Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellas, your host. We've all heard the truism that we write about the past in a way that reflects our present concerns. It is no accident that there has recently been a surge in studies of environmental and climate change in late antiquity and early Byzantium. Non-human causes of change are being emphasized like never before. These include bacteria and an apparently cooling climate starting in the 6th century. A host of publications now link the fall of the Roman Empire to climate and disease. Given the times in which we live, such headlines are not surprising. Apart from our growing awareness of the role of such factors, funding structures have also changed to accommodate or encourage collaborative research between scientists and historians. Now, this does not mean that such studies are anachronistically projecting modern concerns onto the past. It can mean instead that a change in our situation has opened our eyes to important factors in history to which we were previously blind. Moreover, there are significant differences between the climate breakdown that we are experiencing right now and the proposed climatic fall of Rome. Our current situation is directly the product of human activity, of all the carbon dioxide and methane that we are emitting into the atmosphere. The cause here is the particular structure of our economy, which incentivizes these emissions, of our culture, which depends on them, and of our uh, political system, which enables those who profit from them to block reforms that would slow the problem. By contrast, in the case of the Roman Empire, the postulated causes are mostly non-anthropogenic. Some just appear from the outside, a bacterium, a cold spell, and further weakens the Roman Empire. But this poses a number of methodological challenges. One of them is the interface between the scientific and the cultural realms. Do we have models that are sophisticated enough to process these two operating systems, as it were? Or are we doomed to always treat the scientific data as the cause and the history and culture that we observe in the sources as the effect? I'm, I'm making quotation marks around cause and effect here. So just how much of late Roman culture are we supposed to lay at the doorstep of climatic changes, especially when much of the data for these changes does not actually come from the territories of the Roman Empire, but from outside? With me to discuss these problems is my colleague Tina Sessa from the Department of History at The Ohio State University. She has just written a provocative article that tackles these questions head on. It is called The New Environmental Fall of Rome, A Methodological Consideration and was just published in the Journal of Late Antiquity, Volume 12. Here, then, is my conversation with Tina. Welcome, Tina, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So it seems that these days we ancient historians or cultural historians, we can't walk down the street without someone throwing a, an ice core at us or some paleobotanical <laughs> evidence or DNA or, or whatever. Uh, this is picking up steam a lot, and there's some uh, very good uh, synthetic work that's coming out that's trying to change the way in which we practice ancient medieval history. So could you just broadly speaking, tell us what, what kinds of new scientific data are, are historians bringing to the table here to uh, understand new or old questions? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and as someone who was not trained as an environmental historian or for that matter, as a climate scientist or a scientist in the technical sense in, of any respect, um, what I as a cultural historian find really exciting um, are, are, you know, I, I can outline sort of three different areas that I think are really innovative and interesting and, and give us as historians new material to work with. And the first, um, as you alluded to, is paleogenetics. Um, and specifically, one of the big questions that has fascinated um, and perplexed historians of late antiquity in particular is this uh, event known as the Justinianic Plague. Um, and what exactly it was, what the extent to it, how many people died, so on and so forth. And one of the things we've been able to do now is actually identify with, with you know, certainty what it was these people died from. And we can do this now through genetic, uh, through genetic research. Specifically, we can now take uh, genetic material, DNA material, out of skeletal remains of people whom we're guessing died around the time uh, that the plague was uh, in existence and analyze that and and determine what that what what it was this person died from and specifically whether or not they died from uh, con contracting this pathogen known as Yersinia pestis um, to bacterial infection and this is really cool because, again, it sort of settles this debate that's been going on for a very long time. Um, we have lots of textual evidence that describes a disease that we thought sounded like the bubonic plague, but we didn't know for certain until we did this genetic evidence, uh, this genetic research. And the other really cool thing that is even more recent, we've, we've known this now for probably 10 or 15 years. Um, 20 even, that that it was in fact this bacteria called the, um, the called Yersinia pestis that killed people in, in the ancient world. Um, but now we can actually talk about it as a, a genome that was mutating. And some of the really recent work done out of a lab at Jena has shown that um, the Justinianic plague was in fact not one plague, so to speak, but a, a, a genetically mutating plague, um, which is interesting and, and, and I think exciting to think about what, that, what these discoveries might do. Um, the other area that I would point out, I mean, there are lots, but, but let me point out one other area that is really exciting, I think, for an historian that I didn't talk very much about at all in the paper I wrote, and that's big data. Um, and one of the things we can do now with computer programs and new methods of statistical analysis is that we can examine and actually do things with enormous amounts of data. Um, and so just let me give you one example. There are a very recent study that just came out in 2019 by a group of Dutch scholars uh, examined something like 10,000 uh, osteological remains, bone pieces of bone. And they were able with this enormous data set and using very uh, sophisticated statistical modeling to come up with something like a, a kind of set of conclusions about what they call um, the biological standard of living um, for Romans from 250 BCE through 750 CE. 
And the results were actually really interesting. Um, in fact, what they show is that biological standards of living existed in an inverse relationship to uh, population size, which we might expect, that's a kind of Malthusian uh, prediction, but it also seems to have existed in an inverse relationship to wealth and economic prosperity. In other words, when the Roman Empire was at its largest and most wealthy and most powerful, people were the least healthy biologically. Um, and this is something that you could not possibly have done, you know, 20, 30 years ago without the advent of big data and and these, again, these statistical uh, analytic methods. So, so those are two. I mean, paleobotany is really cool. We can now take uh, sub-fossilized pollen particles and figure out what people were growing, what kind of crops, what exactly what type of wheat uh, what type of trees were growing in a particular environment and whether they stopped growing at a particular time. Um, so there's lots of, of really interesting techniques and, and information that science is now giving historians that we didn't have before. Right. It sounds like the, the scientific angle has been taken to a whole new level. Uh, yes, I, I mean, exactly. I, I, I remember in, in, in grad school, you know, in, in, in the, back in the Bronze Age, when there were things like <laughs> dendrochronology, which mm -hmm. was used for dating things, right. really. And also, I think a lot of archaeologists and anthropologists had made use of this kind of evidence, but on a small scale, like very site-specific, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking which about... Which they still do, which they still yeah, do, yeah, yeah. but... Yeah, no, I mean, in many ways, archaeologists were the first to really collaborate with scientists and to use scientific techniques, methods, and data for their work. Um, historians, those of us who work mostly on text, are kind of late to the game, actually. So this kind of, this new research, it, it involves a lot of collaboration between historians and scientists and even labs, right? So ranging mm -hmm. from cultural historians all who don't, you know, work with beakers and Bunsen burners to all the way to labs who, you know, don't do history. And so this is producing uh, some, some very sort of new and innovative types of research and publications. Uh, could, could you give uh, our listeners a sense of just how different the, this kind of research looks yeah. from well, traditional sort of monographs? Abs absolutely. I mean, so historians, myself included, we're pretty much lone wolves when we do our research. We don't really work with other people very much, maybe a bit. Um, and so, you know, people will sometimes collaborate with maybe one or two other people. But we tend to not collaborate with that many people. And we tend to, more, most importantly, only get credit, um, whether it's for getting tenure, getting a promotion, getting a new job. We tend to only really be credited by producing research where we are the sole author. So there's a very long tradition of the historian, you know, working by him or herself in the dusty archives, slaving away, um, you know, on their own. And, and that could not be more different than the tradition of scientific research, which I'm sure, as most people know, is all about labs. And labs require many, many people doing many, many different types of jobs. So if you were to pick up a piece of published research by a scientist, you will actually, if you've never looked at one before, you'll be kind of struck. There, there could be 30 names, right, on, on, the, yeah. on, the, on the publication. And... And this, so, and so one of the things that started to happen is that 
that more scientific model of collaboration where it's not about one guy in a library, but multiple people you know, tackling a problem from different angles, working towards the same goal. Um, you know, labs often divide up jobs and roles um, and typically by expertise. And so what's now happening is there's a, there's, there's a whole spate of new literature where historians are now working with scientists trying to sort of, again, offer their expertise on what they know and working alongside histori uh, scientists. And so we do get, um, you know, a lot of these new publications, which are really interesting, that have multiple authors. Um, I do think it's really hard, though, for historians to get their head around it. I mean, I would, I would guess that most historians wouldn't understand even how to read the list of authors in terms of determining who who's important, right? I mean, you have a list of 30 names. It's not the first name that's important, which is which is contrary to what we might expect. It's actually usually the last name, yeah, at yeah. least in the biological scientists uh, sciences. So history as a field just doesn't really recognize yet this alternative model. And, it, and I do think it's it's a bit of a problem in terms of opening up new avenues for for working collaboratively with scientists because most historians are just so unfamiliar but that is it is happening and and there's been some super exciting work being done by uh projects that very consciously bring together people with specific paleo scientific uh data and knowledge and interests with people who are working on ancient and byzantine uh, historical texts um, right. But I think so, the whole system is going to have to change if we want to truly move forward with 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 this kind of research. So moving forward with this kind of research, I can imagine that it uh, takes on both uh, tries to provide new answers to old questions, but also and perhaps more interestingly to uh, to pose new questions. Now, yeah. later on, we'll, we'll, <laughs> later we can talk about some of the old questions, um, but. Could you tell us a, a few of the the new questions that are becoming, you know, viable to answer, to be answered in this new environment? Yeah, I mean, I, I should sort of preface this by saying I think most of the research that's been published, at least in the last twenty years, that involves historians in the lead integrating this kind of scientific evidence. Um, has largely been about answering, trying to answer old questions. Like I mentioned, we we you know we were all wondering whether the Justinianic plague was or was not the bubonic plague. Now we know, thanks to science, that kind of thing. Um, and we should come back to that because I think ultimately we're, we're we're in some ways not really moving forward as a field because we continue to keep asking the same questions over and over again. Um, but. I do think there is space, uh, at, even today at this moment, to start asking some new questions. And I think the big question we can start to ask is how did people living in the in late antiquity, in the Byzantine period, how did they experience their environment? Um, it used to be we would have to rely exclusively on text to answer that question. We would therefore be more or less locked into a conversation about representation, about aesthetics, about inherited traditions. Um, and and we were we'd always sort of wonder in the back of our minds, you know, are they making this whole thing up or are they are they actually responding in their own particular way to 
the actual changes in their physical environment. And I think we can start to ask, we can start to wonder whether or not they were and try to answer those questions, I think, because we now do have better uh, data. And the climate data is probably the trickiest to use in some ways um, for reasons that I'm happy to talk to to you about later. Um, But I do think when we we have, you know, our sources that are claiming, for example, a famine to have taken place for, you know, years and years in a particular area, um, we can now through paleo, you know, botanic evidence actually see did did in fact people stop growing food in this one region? Um, Did 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 wheat? growing stop? Did did they switch to another crop that, you know, maybe wasn't as, um, was you couldn't scale up to the extent that you needed to, to feed everybody? I mean, I think there are ways we can sort of answer these questions now, um, and therefore better understand what our, our authors are doing when they describe these uh, catastrophic moments, which they do all the time. Um, and so the question really is, you know, are they are they responding to the environment? And if they are, in what way? And and we can't really answer that question before we know something about the actual environment. Um, yeah. And I think we're starting to be able to do that more and more. Yeah. So in your paper, you raise a number of theoretical critiques of some of the directions in which this mm-hmm. research has gone, um, and some of the you know possible problems with the new models that are being presented. So let, let, let's talk. A little bit about those. And specifically, I noted that you were um, repeatedly coming back to the issue of what you call proxy evidence. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's a problem? Sure. So proxy evidence is, by definition, substitute a substitute for direct evidence. When you don't have direct evidence for something, you substitute something else that might give you something towards an answer to the question you're asking. Um, and it is particularly, proxy evidence is particularly important for doing any kind of research on uh, on ancient climate. And that is because in the ancient world and in the Byzantine world, we are in a world that is pre-instrumental, meaning nobody had the kinds of instruments to accurately measure rainfall, wind speed, air pressure, all those kinds of things that we now do. We could, we've been doing for you know hundreds of years, um, and 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 allow us to give us more direct evidence about climate and weather. Um, so we don't have any of that. And, and, and so because we don't have any of that, we have to figure out a way around the problem. And one of the ways around the problem is to find evidence that will indirectly answer our questions. And so probably the most, uh, I don't know, famous or well-known is the, the tree rings, the dendrochronological evidence. Now, tree rings, I think you pointed this out earlier, um, have for a long time been used as a way to date things because trees grow a kind of new band every every year. And, and so, you know, we've known this and we've used trees to date things. But the other thing that tree rings can tell us is they can give us a, a sense about rainfall and, and moisture and, and, pers- and precipitation. 
Um, and that's what tree rings now can be used for. However, the problem is that where we get these tree rings, um, if you want to study the southern Mediterranean, we don't have trees. A, we don't have trees that are that old. B, we don't even have the remains of trees from the period we want to look at. Um, and there are other problems too. It, only certain types of trees you can, can, can one actually use to, um, to devise a kind of long-term uh, pattern of precipitation. So that's why for, for late Mediterranean questions about climate, you have to rely on forests that grow not in the Mediterranean era, but, 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 but farther north. So in the, in the uh, Alpine regions and then over actually even as far away as Russia. Um, you know, on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with doing this. I mean, we, we, we want to know something about precipitation, uh, in this period, we don't have any direct evidence. There's nothing wrong with using proxies. Um, in some ways, one might say it's better than nothing. And it kind of is better than nothing. Um, but the problem is that ultimately what you're getting is this kind of macroscalar, broad brush snapshot of climate that is not regionally specific to the area you're looking at. Um, so in other words, it's a big problem of scale. Um, you know, and the fact that we know there was temperatures um, and precipitation in happening in Central Europe in the, the sixth century doesn't necessarily mean that people living in North Africa would have been experiencing the same temperatures and the same precipitation. So it's it's a kind of blunt force sort of tool in a way um, to get to answering the question of what did climate mean? What was climate like? How was it changing uh, in late antiquity? And, and so, and the other problem too, although this is getting better, I am told, is that we still don't have really great chronological resolution, even with um, the dendrochronological evidence. Um, sometimes you can get it on a, um, a decanal or, or even a, an annual basis, but a lot of times you can't. And, you know, 100 years for a paleo scientist is probably not a big deal. But for us, like 100 years is a long time. I need much more specificity, you know, to, to when that, when, when was that period of cooling telling me it happened over a 50 or a hundred year period isn't necessarily all that helpful. So I think that's, that's this question of scale, um, that it gives you this kind of big picture, but doesn't really ever give you a sense of what's going on, on a, on a micro scale regional level, which is, you know, where our, most of our other evidence comes from. Um, and you end up having this kind of mismatching of evidence where your archaeological evidence for a region suggests one thing, but your tree rings from, from the alpine forests suggest something else. And this happens all the time. Um, and so, you know, yeah. it's, and, and both are right, you know, I mean, the tree ring evidence is correct. It's just not, uh, it, it's just giving you insight on a scale that doesn't necessarily answer the question you want to answer about a specific place. Yeah, the area where I've encountered this, uh, the problem of uh, proxy evidence is the, what's called the uh, late antique Little Ice Age. That's right, the Lalia. Yeah, and so, I mean, so there, I mean, there's some kind of evidence that 
that is much more direct, uh, like, for example, the, uh, the paleobotany evidence from uh, Asia Minor and some of the lakes, mm-hmm. uh, where you, it right. tells you that in certain periods, say the 7th century in particular, which interests me, the, the amount of agricultural production declined, and you can trace it right there. Uh, but I'm not entirely sure, like as a historian, what to make of a, a cooling period um, that uh, supposedly affected the entire Mediterranean, but the data from it comes from um, Central Asia or, you know, Central or Northern Europe. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, so what am I supposed to make of that exactly? Um, especially when many of these studies mention that that the next significant, not the next, but a later significant cooling period was the 19th century. Right. Which is right. like the period of the most, you know, rapid development, demographic growth in history. I mean, it's a... Uh, right, right. So what are the, I mean, we want to know as historians, we're interested in what are the what are the sort of implications and the ramifications? What are the knockoff effects of of this of this you know period of climactic change, if any? Um, and you know, and, and and but if we don't actually, if we can't really accurately measure what that change was, because we don't have the kinds of of precise regional evidence that we would like to have, it is hard to know what to do with all of that. Um, You know, there are certainly, I mean, in terms of the late antique Little Ice Age, there are certainly other types of evidence that suggests there was some cooling. Um, You know, there are accounts uh, of the the so-called year uh, without the sun, right? When there were uh, a series of volcanic eruptions in the 530s and early 540s, and, and people talked about this. I mean, it was clearly a sort of frightening event because it really did kind of get darker <laughs> for, for quite a while. This was an, an enormous volcanic event. And if people are wondering how on earth that could have happened, remember what happened when that volcano in Iceland erupted a few years ago and all of the air traffic in Europe like shut down for weeks. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so, I mean, this is not, this is something that I think, you know, is, is, uh, you, you can see accounts of this in, in text, but how long, you know, how long it lasted. And again, what kind of, of, you know, impact this might've had on, on people's lives in specific places is a lot harder to, yeah, yeah. to know. And, and so, so, you know, again, it's, it's it, the climate stuff, I think in some ways, it's what everybody wants to talk about. It's, and it's interesting for sure. But in some ways I feel like we're much, we're on much sure footing with some of our other kind of scientific evidence that we're, we're starting to use more and more. Um, the climate evidence just seems sort of really still quite, um, it's in progress. Un- oh, it's, it's in progress. It's still right? in progress. No, no, yeah, exactly. I mean, we'll, we'll have to wait for more research. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. So, an- always. Um, another problem that you talk about in terms of the modeling of history has to do with causation. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk a lot in the article about that, models for causation. And you say that a lot of this research um, ends up being what you call enviro reductive uh, in its framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we talk a little bit about causation? Um, that's that's something that's uh, preoccupied me a little bit too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would also, I mean, we'll come back to talking maybe a little bit about this. I have a few more ideas about the collaboration between scientists and historians that I would like to talk about, but we can certainly circle back to that. Um, yes. So 
I, in the work that I evaluated, it were, it was publications from about 2000 up until just last year. Um, and I was struck by the, the uh, consistent disclaimers by everybody that they are not environmental determinists, that they are not insisting that the environment, that environmental agents, non-human agents were either uh, monoly or, or as part of a chain of events, you know, the, the, the singular causes of whatever it is they're investigating, whether it's the rise of Rome or the fall of Rome or whatnot. And what I found is despite, and, and they know they have to do this because the field of environmental history has itself gone through its own phase of environmental determinism and has, you know, come out on the other end, really underlining the shortcomings of a position that attributes this kind of independent, uh, um, sort of monolithic uh, agency to a set of environmental agents as being kind of solely responsible for, you know, the the, con the continuous flourishing of a, of a civilization or its or its collapse. Right. So environmental historians know you're not supposed to do that because it's it's problematic and they know that change historical change is, is infinitely and, and irreducibly more complex. The relationship between human and non-human agents is so complicated. Um, and so I think what happens with our late antique colleagues is they they understand that that is a an intellectually um, weak position, but they haven't really done the work to try to devise methods that would produce a model of analysis that in fact isn't reductive and isn't deterministic. And I think the biggest problem with the with this research is that they privilege the scientific data to such a great extent where they more or less treat the, the, the historical evidence, the literary texts, even the archaeology as a kind of second order, secondary sort of uh, a pile of, of evidence that is used not to kind of look at and, and, and understand in its, on its own terms, but to basically use it as a, um, as, a, as a set of data to either confirm or deny, as it were, what the science is telling us. And so just to give one example, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an article that looks at a poem and wants to connect, use, argue that this poem should be redated because it refers to a drought that can be uh, um, determined, that, that can be uh, um, otherwise externally determined by looking at tree ring evidence. Um, and what this scholar ends up doing is effectively reducing a poem to a kind of, uh, you know, a document that does little more or less than than corroborates what the, the tree rings are telling you. Um, and it's and it certainly is not taking the poem seriously in its own right. Um, it's not 
considering the ways in which the author of the poem may have had a whole set of other interests in mind when he represented this one small city as being uh, uh, dry or parched. Um, instead, it has to be a, a sign, a symbol, a piece of evidence that the tree rings were right all along. Um, and and I think that is the kind of, of analysis that can only ever produce a an environmentally deterministic set of conclusions. And and what needs to happen is we have to start looking at the literary evidence and and the texts as being equally important when we want to reconstruct an environmental uh, a set of environmental changes or even environmental continuity. We have to use them and we have to treat them as equal and privilege them together. Um, we can't assume that the science is going to solve all our problems and that our text will just neatly fit into this narrative that the science is, is, is driving. Um, and I think that's mm -hmm. the, that's the thing that kind of gets to me is just the, the, the sort of the subjugating of the, of the literary evidence when it's, it's that it's incredibly important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it's almost as if the poem is being treated as a as an effect of a of a natural event. Exactly, um, exactly. So, in other words, that the that the poet wrote the poem because there was a drought, and yeah. that's why. As if I mean, and it's just we know we know that that's not why ancient poets wrote poems, right? We know this because we actually know a lot about. Uh, late Latin poetry, and 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 we can we can draw on generations of scholarship that that would point us into a more complex direction than what this particular scholar presents. Um, and know, so I think, yeah, sorry, go on. So, um, so what's striking to me is the the emphasis uh, that's put on causation um, in a lot of these studies, um, and and that's striking to me because um, it's not always. Or really ever acknowledged that this is the interpretive framework that we're operating in and, and that no me... no they they actively deny it I mean and and so what I tried to argue in my in my essay right is that instead of taking this question full-on which is you know what what is the relationship between human and non-human agency that's really in, in a nutshell what we're asking um, rather than you know trying to interrogate that question, they they sort of they really never bring it up, and they instead rely on metaphors as a kind of I don't know a sort of way to get around the question. So they talk about the agency of of non humans um, in a whole sort of set of ways that in many that obviate the the big question, which is: Are you suggesting that these non human agents are largely solely responsible for whatever outcome that you yeah. are are arguing for? Yeah, I mean, most historical scholarship in our period, like, really isn't about causation primarily uh you know we do a lot more different things we we date things we try to understand what right. happened we interpret things we try to understand them in their cultural context I, I don't think it's that common for um you know ancient medieval historians to say i am going to try to explain this event now it it happens we we, we, we well, that is a mode right but it is only yeah, yeah, one yeah. among many 
Right. Well, I mean, again, to go back to one of your earlier questions, which was, are we using this this new scientific data and methods to ask new questions or to answer old questions? And I think it's mostly thus far to answer old questions. And the big question that scholars have kind of, uh, you know, collected around to try to answer is the the old, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire. Why did the empire fall? And that question, if you ask it that way, demands a cause, right? There must be a cause. There must be a thing, uh, some sort of, uh, either it's an event or something structural. There has to be a cause that brought about this putative fall of the empire. And I think, frankly, that's one of the big problems of a lot of this scholarship. It's stuck around, it just gets stuck in that question, um, which I don't think is a very good question. First of all, because I think it posits something called a fall, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me um, as an historian of late antiquity. And and I think that it's interesting to me, but the historians that have been the most successful in really combining the scientific with the historical evidence aren't the ones who are looking for the, the cause of the fall. They're the ones who are looking at late antiquity as, as a story of resilience and, and a story where there are a whole set of of changes going on, political, social, religious, and environmental, and trying to then sort of understand how things shake out, who are the winners and losers when you do have the combination of these multiple variables in different ways and at different times. So it's not this kind of linear argument about the fall of an empire. It's something that's very nonlinear and is more looking at questions of how do, how do, how do, why do certain communities survive and others don't, right? I mean, that's, that's the more interesting question. Um, and I think, you know, so, so to me, the, the fixation on causation is, is largely linked to this obsession with answering the question of why the Roman Empire fell. It's possible that the, the fall of the Roman Empire comes in in order to give some of the scientific data something to do. <laughs> that is, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Like, no? So if, if you've decided that you have all this data and that this data is a cause, like that's how you're going to treat it, right? Well, you then have to look for its effect. Right, right. And its effect, if, if your data is small, your, its effect is, well, like maybe a poem. Uh, if the data set is big, well, what's the biggest thing in the room that I can link it to, right? Well, the fall of the Roman Empire. I'm like, who doesn't right, want to explain right. that? Or the rise, for that matter. The there's a there's another argument, right, that links the rise of the Roman Empire to a warming period, the, the so-called Roman optimum. Um, yes, no. I mean, I think I think that is it is a little bit of the of the tail wagging the dog, as it were. I mean, I do think there's an element to that for sure. And I think the, I actually think where that's coming from, if you look at the literature, it's mostly coming from the scientists. It's the literature when the scientists have all this data and they desperately want a narrative. Um, and so because they, they want their data to have some kind of meaning beyond a bunch of numbers, which, you know, 
is is actually what it is, right? So so how do you take this these this this numerical evidence and how do you qualify it and turn it into a story? Um, this is something that Adam Izdebski and some other scholars I think have really sort of drawn important attention to, and it is a place where where historians and scientists are kind of interested in the same outcome. That is, we we want to tell we want to write narratives, um, but I think when you when it comes to the scientists at least some of them, I, I certainly don't think all of them. And I would, I can think, for example, of like Sturt Manning's work, who I would absolutely not put in, in this category. Um, but I think in some of the scientists, they they aren't very adept at thinking about narrative as, as a nuanced, a historical narrative in a nuanced way. And so the, the rise and fall of an empire, you know, rise and flourishing and collapse, right? That seems, that's a good paradigm. Why not? Let's, let's, let's go for it. It's clear, it's simple, and it gives meaning to, to data, which, which otherwise don't have a lot of meaning to people. So, so I understand why they're doing it. Um, but then I also think that historians who quite frankly should know better have been way too quick to kind of jump on their, the scientist's bandwagon and not push back against the claims that this data is somehow giving us the cause of these enormous, complex, you know, multivariable, nonlinear developments in the past. Yeah, yeah there's an interesting uh, Byzantine case uh, just a few centuries later. I don't know if you know about this. Uh, it's a, it was a study to show that claim to show that, quote, Slavic DNA was not is not very present in the Greek population. Interesting. And it, yeah, I know it's and it is a strange combination of the most cutting edge, you know, genetic research combined with, I kid you not, historical models from the 19th century. Um, about for, race and a, migration. Exactly. And like that. A, yeah, yeah. Greek national historian, 19th century, you know, arguing, well, maybe not so many Slavs. So, you know, let's have a DNA study. And the way in which the question, like, the, you know, the DNA evidence proves whatever, whatever it proves. But the way in which the historical question is posed is just, like, I don't even see how those yeah. two intersect. So, so this is the thing, actually, and I'm glad you brought this up because I think this is something that has to be made very clear. Paleogeneticists and historians often have very different questions. And it might seem like we're on we're all on the same page, but we're actually not on the same page. And, and let me give you a specific example. So um, back to the Justinianic plague and this this recent research that has been done that has identified the plague plague DNA in human remains from not only from parts of Germany and Bavaria, but now actually, uh, from France, from Spain, even as far west as Britain. They actually have one one skeleton from Cambridgeshire. Oh, wow. um, totally fascinating. And and they so now we have we used to have ten bodies, but now we have thirty, which is great, right? But this is the thing. Historians when we talk about plague, and if we're talking about what we think is a pandemic, which is the way the Justinianic plague has always been described, we want to know how many people died. 
we want bodies. We want a clear sense of what the impact was on the population, because that's what matters, right? If 1% of the population goes down from the pandemic, there's that's a really different thing from 50 or to 60% of the population. Um, because ultimately what we want to know is, okay, if the population is being decimated, then that might help us to understand other changes that we see going on. Or it might actually be part of other changes that are going on. And we want to link the, that population decline to economic changes, to political changes, to religious changes, which is what people have done. The geneticists, however, they don't care how many people died. They're not interested in bodies. They want samples. They want good dental pulp that they can carefully analyze because what they want to do isn't tell, isn't tell us how many people died. They want to reconstruct the genome, right? So they whether they have 30 or 30,000 bodies, I wouldn't say it's immaterial, but it matters to them a heck of a lot less than it matters to us. You know, 30, we have 30 bodies now. That's great. But, but how could you possibly take make an argument around an enormous pandemic where you're claiming 50 to 60% of the population died from 30 bodies. I, I think it's a problem. But the geneticists are completely, you know, nonplussed by this because they're not asking that question. Um, and, and it was interesting when I was at a conference last spring, I actually heard this Yena group that I talked about earlier present their, their findings. And when I asked them point blank, you know, what do you think the impact was on the population? What percentage of the population do you think died? Are you a maximalist or minimalists? And they refuse to answer. <laughs> and I think that's because they just, that's just not their question. Right. And so we think we're all on the same, we think we're working together, but actually we're kind of not working together. They have their questions, which are really fascinating, but they're not necessarily our questions. And I think we have to recognize this and be much clearer about this moving forward than to protect that we can do, you know, we can throw out a couple of multi-authored papers and somehow we're all working on the same page. We're all, we're all working towards this kind of interdisciplinary goal of fusing the science, the humanities with the sciences, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's so much more work that has to be done before we even get close to that kind of claim. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I recently wrote my account of the Justinianic plague, you know, in the, in the history that I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And I, so I went into this, I gathered all the evidence, all the texts and uh, scientific literature, and I, I, I was not sure what I was going to make of it. And, you know, I mean, I have, you know, my source, Procopius, <laughs> who would be called a maximalist, right? And mm -hmm. I, I... Well, except he's only talking about Constantinople, but yes. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, but yes. And yeah. And when you say that, uh, you know, uh, you know, half the people lived and half died, that's, you know, some people, some people died and some people lived. And, um, and I, I came out of that process of thinking, trying to model the plague uh, minimalist. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean, I, I just couldn't square historical developments immediately, you know, during and after the plague with that kind of impact. Uh, and, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, so I, you know, I'm, I am very, I'm, it's interesting. I mean, the, the pendulum has swung back and forth so many times going from this 
maximalist position that saw the Justinianic plague as the real game changer in late in, in, in antiquity, marking the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the Middle Ages to a, a kind of minimalist era where scholars pointed out, actually, we have really quite little evidence, textual or epigraphic, that is inscriptions um, or archaeological that allows us to draw that kind of conclusion to then when they discovered the DNA evidence, this kind of reignited the um, that is when they we were finally able to determine that people did actually die from bubonic plague. Um, and I should say that, of course, the bubonic plague is is the same pathogen, not genetically identical, but the same pathogen, of course, as the Black Death in the 14th century, as well as the same pathogen as the uh, the, the so-called third pandemic uh, of the bubonic plague in the, in the 19th century. So we knew what happened in once we knew okay it's definitely the bubonic plague and and we knew what happened in the 14th century everyone started jumping back onto these medieval sort of models of of the extent of the plague and 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 started to draw all sorts of conclusions about about the Justinianic plague. But I think what now is happening, you and there's been a series of articles um, produced by a couple of young scholars uh, recently out of Princeton who are very much also pushing back against the this kind of neo-maximalist position. And I do think it, it gives us pause. However, saying all of that, I think we do also now have to come up with a way of understanding how the heck this thing got to, to got to Britain, right? I mean, I mean, this is no longer just Germany. We actually do have evidence of people dying from this, not all at the same time. We're talking about, you know, 150, 200 year period. Um, the other th interesting discovery recently that I mentioned is it's not all the same plague in terms of the genetics, there's actual there's mutations that went on between the plague that killed the folks that Procopius writes about in the 540s and the one that uh, people think uh, hit Spain and and southern France in the late sixth century and early seventh century. So that's interesting. I, I don't know what to do with it yet, but. I think what we have to sort of come back to is this place where bubonic plague is awful. It's a terrible way to die. It's ugly. It's extreme. It's not like just getting an infection with a fever, which is how a lot of people died in the ancient world. Um, and so I think there's a way in which the narratives sort of, I don't want to say exaggerate, but amplify its extent because it was so horrible, horrible to look at, horrible to experience. I also think it probably was really awful when it broke out in certain cities. But I don't think we can say it wiped out 50 to 60% of the population when we still only have 30 bodies that we know were people die, who have died from the plague. Yeah, um, 30 bodies, uh, but also the... Uh, I, so the part of the argument I make is that you, you see no disruption in the operation of state institutions that involve a lot of large numbers of people. Yeah, no, uh, that's right. The army continues to, to yeah, function Just, on. Justinian, continue, his armies continue to operate everywhere. In fact, they multiply the fronts. 
the justice system, church, taxation, all of that just continues with no apparent disruption. Um, and uh, anyway, no, it's, I, I'd be more inclined to believe that the plague had a larger demographic impact over the course of a number of generations. So, mm -hmm. you know, two or three generations later, they might have been and probably cumulative. Were, yeah. 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 Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's all again, you know, depending I mean, one of the other questions that is now being reopened is this question of transmission, um, the flea and rat sort of combination uh, uh, vector has been very much critiqued recently for, well, not more recently, for a long time, um, for a number of reasons, one of which there are, there are no rat bones. Like, we don't find lots of dead rats, which is what we're supposed to find, right? Because the, the theory used to be the fleas would carry the disease and they would infest a certain type of rat that didn't have immunity to it. The rat would die and then the flea would jump off the dead rat onto the person and then infect the person. Um, and this is quite clear what happened to the 19th century. This is clearly how people in, in, in China and India contracted plague in the 19th century. Um, how they did it in the 6th and 7th and 8th centuries, that's that's still an open question. Um, and in fact, it's even an open question in the 14th century with the Black Death. And there's now been work on uh, so-called ectoparasites, so like lice, and whether there is more of a human-to-human -human contact. And, you know, that would that would certainly explain some things as uh, in terms of, you know, the spread of it. You can imagine a traitor with lice, you know, getting across from France into Britain and and bringing it to to Britain, that would make sense, more sense in some ways than a rat somehow sneaking onto a boat kind of thing. Sure. Um, yeah. But it's it also does. It, but it, but we don't know. I mean, that's the point. It, we're, we're still unsure. Um, and I think we have to stop giving the Justinianic plague the kind of explanatory power that we tend to give it. I mean, it is seen in a lot of work as this sejour, as like creating this break, right? That that so many people died, so many things collapsed, that, that, the, that the entire culture changes, it's been suggested, that people become more religious, more Christian, uh, more afraid of end times because of the, of, of more, more devoted to the Virgin Mary. I mean, there's a whole range of, of arguments that people have made about culture um, that I think we seriously have to rethink and, and be much more skeptical about those uh, until we get a better sense. And I don't know how much we ever will truly know about the extent of the plague in terms of, of population and death rates. I mean, the, it's expensive yeah. to do this genetic work. We can't yeah. possibly do it on every single burial that we think might date to the period. Um, I'll point out all the work that's been done is done in wealthy Western European countries. There's been you know, nothing coming out of Turkey or Syria or places where we'd love to have some genetic evidence because those are, you know, according to our literary sources, those are like the real hotspots of right, it. Right. So, uh, you know, well, I, and I just, yeah. The, the century is still young. <laughs> it is. A lot's going to have to change. I'm not sure, you know, I, I, it, but that's a problem, right? I mean, yes, our yes, own no, I agree, sort I agree. of contemporary uh, political yeah. and economic situation kind of drives ultimately what we can know <laughs> yeah and uh, the funding structures in our universities but let's not get into that uh, <laughs> anyway uh, so tina we're, we're almost out of time uh, but okay. i wanted at the end to ask you a question uh, that i ask everyone which is can you recommend 
uh, two books that are not necessarily in this field that you thought were intellectually stimulating and that you would recommend? Yes. So I gave this some thought and it was hard question because I feel like there are so many things that I have read that have made me think in new ways. And so I decided for the sake of this podcast to suggest two books that I read as an undergraduate that excited me about becoming a scholar and 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 in which in various ways I still go back to. And the first is Mary Douglas's Purity and Danger. And this is a really old book. It was her first book. It was out of her dissertation work that she had done. Uh, she's an anthropologist or was an anthropologist. She died a few years ago um, who worked in Africa. This was published in 1966. And the question she sort of asks that was so interesting to me at the time is kind of why do cultures create categories of cleanliness and uncleanliness what what you know what does dirt mean what does pollution mean when when we decide as a culture that something's dirty or something's clean or something's sacred or something's profane why do we do this um you know think about food food we we will eat that we think is acceptable to eat and food that we would not eat because we think it's dirty um one example that i think most americans would agree we don't eat horse meat right i mean that is not something americans will eat um and what mary douglas showed is that actually why there, there are reasons why societies create these categories of cleanliness and, and pollution. Um, and it's not arbitrary. And it's also not just based on science. So for example, famously, she talked about kosher laws and really pushed back against this idea that they developed as some sort of like proto health program because, you know, right, right, people yeah. didn't want, you know, they didn't want Jews didn't want to eat pork because they were afraid of trichinosis, but rather that kosher laws, as well as other categories developed by other societies were really these kinds of much bigger symbolic, um, um, structuring forces that helped people organize themselves into into communities with an identity, um, and and they they these rules and categories sort of determined who was inside the group and and who was also then outside the group, and for me as a as a young undergraduate deciding to major in religion and often being quite confounded about why you know, why certain practices and ideas developed the way they did in, in Western religions, which is what I studied. This was sort of just groundbreaking to me to kind of see this social, the ways in which social structures in many ways kind of shape the way we think as individuals. Um, and, and that's important. The other one is Natalie Zeman Davis's The Return of Martin Gare, which was mm. published in 1984. And this is a book that I have read and reread. I teach it. And to me, this is a model of how to write history and how to approach the past with both analytic rigor and compassion. Um, it's just a story about a small village in 16th century France that uh, has this very strange event where this man comes into town posing as a, a villager that had left long ago and lives 
lives under this assumed identity as an imposter. Um, but it's a great book because with this wonderful story, she gets at all sorts of big questions about sex and gender, the law, religion, economy. Um, and it's so beautifully written. I mean, she really, um, she really sort of takes her historical subjects seriously. She really wants them to have a voice. And I've always admired that about her work. And it's something that I think about in my own work um, when I write about, for example, daily life and really wanting to show, to take these people on their own terms. And and she did does a wonderful job in that book. Those are very good books, yes. Thank you, Tina. You're welcome. So this has been uh, a great pleasure. And uh, I hope our listeners uh, learned uh, as much from it as I've learned from you and your article, which I definitely recommend. Oh, thank you. Bye. Good to talk to you too. Bye.